And here comes the commissioner. With the first pick in the 2011 NFL Draft, the Carolina Panthers select Cam Newton, quarterback, Auburn. What is up, Football Nation? It is Tuesday, April 24th, 2012, exactly two days before the NFL Draft. This is the Football Nation Presents the Sportscasters podcast. I am one of the hosts, Steve Bennett, and the other host is my good buddy, Don Ross. How are you doing today, Don? Great. How are you? Doing really good. Looking forward to the draft. You know, it gets to a point in... April, where it seems like it's the longest month of the year as you're waiting for it to finally be time for the draft, but we're just a couple days away, and because of that today, we're going to talk a lot about the draft on the show. Our interview is kind of looking at things through a different perspective. We have on today senior college football writer from Sports Illustrated, Stuart Mandel. The reason I wanted to get Stuart on the show is because it seems like when you talk draft during this time, the people that you hear talking about the draft are Todd McShay and Mel Kuyper and Mike Mayock. And those guys, they study almost every. They study more what happens after the college football season. I know those guys watch a lot of college football games, so I'm not taking that away from them. But it seems like the bulk of their research is Senior Bowl, Columbine, or Combine, I almost called it Columbine. Uh, senior Bowl, Combine. Pro days, workouts, things like that. The cool thing about Mandel is he doesn't follow the draft at all. So we get to talk about the players who are going to be drafted from the point of view of someone who watched these guys play football games, which I don't know about you, Don, but I always seem like it always seems like what they do on the field kind of gets forgot about by this time of the year. Yeah, it almost seems like a uh, people get on a trend. Like a player will trend upward or trend downward, regardless of what happened on the field, but right. maybe because of the combine or whatever. But these guys will move up when nothing happens or move down based solely like on mocks you hear from the media. So the mocks are an interesting thing, but this year especially, they all look very, very similar. Especially at the top. Yeah. Like the first seven picks, like up to Jacksonville. Like that's. Until you get to Jacksonville at 7, it seems like everyone agrees on the top six, which makes me think it's just not going to happen that way, but we'll right, see. Right, right, and that's what makes this year interesting. If you want to really see how good these quote-unquote like TV experts are, we'll see how many of these picks that they all agreed on they get right. Right, everyone agrees with that six, but we'll talk more about that in three things. A um, couple reminders. Uh, this is a joint venture. www.footballnation.com is the host. We're the sportscasters. We have our own website, www.sports-casters.com. Encourage you to go to Football Nation and check out last week's show. We had a former scout from ourlads.com, Dan Shanka, who has been a scout for the Eagles um, and a couple other teams, the Browns, uh, three different teams. He's been an NFL scout, and he had a great perspective on things and a lot of great draft information. So if you want to check out... Uh, episode three of this project uh, with Dan Shanka. We encourage you to do that. And you can find it now on iTunes and uh, also on footballnation.com. 
Today, I mentioned Stuart Mandel uh, from Sports Illustrated is going to be our guest. And then at the end of the show, Don and I are each going to make a bold prediction about the draft and uh, give you some more information about the podcast and things like that. But before we can get to any of that, we start each show with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Instead of each having a first thing, we're going to kind of tackle. Uh, all the issues that, again, the Saints have been having this week. It if People who listen to this show regularly know that I'm a Saints fan, and I can promise you that never has there been an offseason as miserable as this has been so far. It seems like every day there's something new to talk about with the Saints, and we got basically three different issues that have come up with this week. It'd be tough to power rank. If you were to power rank bad offseasons for any team in the league, you'd have a hard time finding one worse than this. This has been a rough one. It's been awful. And uh, the latest bit of awful news was an outside the lines report that came out yesterday that said that from 2002 to 2005, Saints general manager Mickey Loomis had somehow tapped into uh, the wires in the Superdome and created some kind of special listening device uh, to eavesdrop on coaches and players. And I'm going to tell you, when I heard this, it didn't sound right to me. I didn't see the report. I just kind of heard the fallout after. And I have to say, and this might be a Homer thing to say, and I might be proven wrong later, but I just think this is bullshit. I'm just going to put it right like that. I think this is a crock of shit. I think that ESPN went digging for anything that they could find to follow up the bounty issue with and this is what they found. I think it's garbage. Uh, there's a report that the Saints asked ESPN for proof. They didn't provide anyone. Any uh, Bill Polian, who works at ESP or works at the NFL Network now, has said it doesn't make any sense. Adam Schefter from ESPN, the network, he said that Loomis isn't an X's and O's guy, and this information that would have came through to him would have been X's and O's, and he would have had to find a way to decode it. It's different for each NFL team, and then it just doesn't sound right. I think it's baloney. I think it's someone who was looking for an axe to grind. It's an unnamed source, and I think that it's unfortunate because the public perception is going to right away be that it's true, and whether or not Loomis clears his name on this, the perception is always going to be that the Saints were cheating through some kind of people in the Superdome, and I just don't buy it. Yeah, there is uh... – there is that perception for sure. It's an odd thing to come out of nowhere if, in, if in fact, it is out of nowhere. But, uh, look, my first thought is always that if there's something wrong that could be done, like that it's probably true. Uh, but Peter King kind of takes your side on it, and he thinks the Saints' reaction is very telling. He said that with Bounty Gate, they were kind of quiet, and they offered up a little bit of like a ho-hum uh, reaction to the whole thing. In this, they've come out and said it's 1,000% false. It's 1,000% inaccurate. They, I believe, are looking to uh, see what legal action they can take against yeah. the accusers. So, 
It will be interesting. It's a very odd thing to come out of nowhere, for sure. Look, if it's true, they need to be punished for this as well. And if it's true, I think that's it for Mickey Loomis with the Saints. I think oh, yeah. uh, Benson needs to step in and fire him if this is true. But I just don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. It doesn't sound right to me. This isn't a period where the Saints were benefiting from this information, obviously. No, they said they were 12-12 and 12 at home during that period. Yes, yeah, so, and I don't see how a general manager up in the press box can hear something at halftime, try to figure out what it is. It would be different information for every team, then get it down to the sideline to Coach Haslett at the time, who also came out and said it's false. Cortez Kennedy, who's an advisor on the team, sits with Loomis every week, says it's false. He does have an earpiece that he wears, and what plays in that earpiece is the radio broadcast of the Saints games. Yeah, that's what I've heard, too. And I guess his box, his area, I believe they said, is... I had it written down somewhere. Anyway, okay, front row of box number four. Now... That supposedly is right next to where their coordinators sit in the stands, but there's glass in between them. Uh, people have said they've never seen him like giving hand signals to the coordinators in the other box. So a lot of people have come forward and said even if he had the information, they wouldn't know how he would get it to anybody. So it's a strange allegation, and it's a pretty severe one. Uh, I can't think of a, any much more severe charge you, you know, can place against the team. I mean, that's outside the lines every day has to try to come up with something like this, right? Every They do a show every day at 3 o'clock or 3.30 or whatever. ESPN itself has gotten to the point where it's pretty gossipy and, and not I just, news. I think, you know, this happened before with ESPN. When the Paterno story broke, right away they were there with the, with the fine stuff in Syracuse. And now one of the people who was involved in that story said he was pressured to lie about being molested by fine and that it wasn't true. Wow. And, you know, this is another case. I feel like ESPN looking for anything to follow up the bounty story. This is all they came up with. I think it's garbage. It really bothers me as a fan, as someone who feels like, and yeah, I'm a little bit defensive because I feel like this whole offseason, I've had to defend my team. And it, it, it's the worst position you could be in as a fan. It's awful. For sure, and the reason we uh, kind of tag team this first thing this week is because there's two other issues too that aren't exactly yeah, glowing. That's for the just Saints. one of them. One of them is a Rich Eisen tweet, and I'm sure it's gotten out with other people. But Rich Eisen says, "quote Just interviewed Roger Goodell, who said player discipline and bounty case was coming quote soon, and rejected quote just following orders defense." So they the the uh, owners, general manager, coach, they were all pretty severely penalized. It sounds like the players are going to be severely penalized pretty soon too. There's talking, there's rumblings of a Jonathan Vilma getting a Peyton-like sentence this year. So it, it'll be interesting to see. And not that people are going to have a lot of sympathy for the Saints in this, but I, it'd be nice if he handed this down maybe by like tomorrow because that could change how they. Well, draft yeah, and, I think it's ridiculous, and uh, you know, but part of it is the players' association kind of battling it. Right. That's part of the reason why it's. it's I think coming out as late as it is. I think ideally the commissioner would have liked to have had the discipline ahead of the draft. Again, the Saints don't draft until around 90-something. Right, right. But if you remember the very okay, first true, right. the very first episode of this show, Peter King came on and he said that he heard if there's even one player suspended that the Saints are going to use this as the ultimate rally cry. I think the Saints know that something's coming for Vilma. I've said it before. I think the reason they signed Curtis Lofton and the reason they yeah. gave him the money that they did is because they had a feeling that they might be going without him. 
I think the other players that are maybe in harm's way are probably Malcolm Jenkins. Uh, he could potentially be suspended. Um, there's a quote actually now from the commissioner, which uh, ESPN.com has. It says, the evidence is quite clear that the players embrace this. They include enthusiastically embraced it. They put the vast majority of the money into the program, and they actually are the ones playing the game. They're on the field, so I don't think they are absolved from any responsibility because of that. Uh, I I expect it to be harsh. I wouldn't be surprised if Vilma gets a year. Wouldn't be surprised if um, uh, who else Jenkins gets some time. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe Jabari Greer gets some time. I don't know. I mean, I, I have no idea. I just I'm bracing for the worst. All right, and the last thing about the Saints this week is Rita Benson LeBlanc, the granddaughter of owner Tom Benson. This is this is interesting. Yeah, uh, has been placed on unofficial paid administrative leave. She is, in addition to the granddaughter, she is the executive vice president of the Saints and thought to be uh, the heir Tom apparent. Benson's successor. Right. right. Um, but apparently she's not easy to work with. She's been through 30 assistants in six years, uh, is possibly unmotivated, they're saying now. She so. doesn't work as hard as Benson. I guess Benson, as much as I've criticized him in the past, I guess he's a six-day-a-week guy. Yeah. You know, works six days a week, works really hard. And he, I think, is sending a clear message to his granddaughter that if, and he said he wants to work about five more years, that would put him at 90. God bless him if you can do it. <laughs> but I think he's sending a message saying, if you want to take this over, you need to learn some work ethic here. You know, But she's been missing from a lot of big events. She's the only Saints executive who wasn't at the Hornets game a couple of days ago when they had taken over the Hornets. So she's definitely potentially on the outs, and I think she's going to need to get her act together if she wants to be the person who takes over when and if uh, Benson is no longer with us. Yeah, and to give credit where credit's due, Jeff Duncan, who's about as close to the Saints as anybody that's not with the organization. Great. From the New Orleans Times, Picayune had a whole uh, kind of article featuring Rita Benson LeBlanc. So if you want to read about the Saints and her, uh, go check out his site. All right, I'm going to take it from here. My second thing then, uh, a little bit of the talk about the draft this week has been how ESPN and the NFL Network have agreed to no longer show the players on the phone with the team before the pick is announced by the commissioner. I didn't hear that, but that's great. Yeah, what they what they want to do is they want to put a little bit more kind drama. of drama yeah. back into the broadcast. In the past, with the increased amount of players that are in green rooms now, uh, they don't want the picks to be tipped. However, one pick that they won't be able to have any drama for is number one, because today the Colts GM made it official. Andrew Luck will be the first pick in the draft. We kind of debated last week whether we thought the Colts might change their minds and pick Griffin. I said that I think that they've been on a collision course with Luck for a long time now, yeah, yeah. and I think this was the right move. So bravo to the Colts. And, you know, I think it's been a long time since we didn't know who the first pick in the draft is anyway. That's usually decided ahead of time. I can't remember last year if we knew about Newton or not. Probably. Probably we did. But uh, I Probably know back to Alex Smith. Aaron Rodgers might be the last time there was really a lot of debate good going call. into the draft. Yeah, good call. But, yeah, that's just uh, – you know, it's official. Andrew Luck's the first pick in the draft. Colts fans can buy their jerseys now, and uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it's a great pick, and I think he's going to be a good player there for a long time. Now, that's official, meaning filed with the league, and what, however official it can be. Like, Can I the guess, Redskins go up and make their pick now if they really wanted to? I think they 
You know what? I mean, there's no benefit to either team doing it because they could get a call about some crazy trade. But, I mean, the Redskins have already made their crazy trade to get into that spot. So, and the Colts have had long enough to think about it. It doesn't sound like anyone's going to change their mind. You know, I'm reading a little article here on SI.com, and I don't know for sure what what that means for the Redskins. All I know is that Colts uh, general manager made an announcement following Tuesday's minicamp workout at the Complex. All right, my second thing this week, a little bit of somber news here that you don't often hear about, but uh, Deion Sanders actually had a few tweets last night. Sad stuff. Sad, yeah, and his first one said, Pray for me and my kids now. They just witnessed their mother and a friend jump me in my room. She's going to jail, and I'm pressing charges. And followed that up with two minutes later, I'm sad my boys witnessed this mess, but I warned the police department here that she was going to try to harm me and my boys. This is on my mama. Uh, and then the last thing, picture took right? a picture of yeah. the kids filling out the police reports. Thank God for this platform to issue the truth. So you can see that as two things. I mean, it looks it's almost a little bit exploitive, I guess you could see that bit. as with, yep. with the kids. But if you want to take the glass half full approach, he's raising awareness for something that maybe is not prevalent. You hear all the time about these athletes uh, in the domestic violence charges, but it's usually the men. People such as like Matt Barnaby uh, of the Buffalo Sabers just had a problem, right, this- with Michelle Beadle from ESPN, rumored, and yeah, yeah. But you don't often hear about the flip side. So good on Dion for making that, making people aware of that. It, and it I saw both ways. I saw a tweet from his son, Dion Sanders Jr. You know, saying if my dad would have fought, he would have lost his job, and yeah, you know, that's he, true. You know, so look at. Don and I are both a product of divorce. We've been lucky. Our parents have always been civil. Um, You know, never was there an issue where uh, our parents were fighting like that or anything like that. I think we've both had we've both had really nice step parents. We've both had really, uh, really blessed lives. And it's really sad for the Sanders family. And uh, I hope that there's some way that they can work it out, but it seems like this is going to be really, really ugly. Yeah, it sure does. I mean, that's his, I looked it up because you can never be sure. Uh, that's his wife, current wife, I believe. So, I mean, that's that's ugly. They're not even divorced or anything yet, but I imagine that's coming. Once you press charges, I imagine that the writing's on the wall for, yeah, for your marriage. All right, uh, my third thing today, kind of an interesting story came out today on NFL.com, uh, one that probably is not going to make Redskins fans uh, too happy, but there was a, a report. It was from Sirius XM Radio on Monday. Former Redskins GM Vinny Serrato was on, and here's an interesting thing that he had to say. This is a quote. I remember one time we had a trade. We were in the second round and had a trade done. I called Stump Mitchell, the running back coach. I said, Stump, I can trade right now. I can get the second round pick. We can take Shady McCoy. Do you want him? I can get it done. We're on the clock. I'm on the phone. He said, no, I don't want him. I said, okay. I said, I'm not going to trade for a guy if my position coach does not want him. Ugh. Oops. Uh, (laughs) As you know, the Redskins can't find a running back back in an era where running backs seem to be a dime a dozen. McCoy has turned into be one of the best running backs in the league, especially from an all-purpose standpoint. He's sure. great out of the backfield catching the ball. And I guess what I think is that this goes to show what a poor 
kind of organizational situation they had under Serato because how do you as a GM let your running backs coach outrule you when you've taken all the time to set up a trade and get ready to move up to pick a player like McCoy? It's shocking to me, and uh, I can't make Redskins feel good. Redskins fans feel good, but I thought it was interesting. Um, Obviously, they've already made their trade this year, and uh, they've mortgaged a lot to move up and take Griffin, and I think that makes a lot of sense, but... Man, it'd be nice if Griffin was coming into a team that already had McCoy in the backfield, huh? Sure, and on the surface, the logic there makes sense. The GM saying, I don't want a guy my position coach doesn't like. But then if you really think about it, you you have teams of scouts that are paid to make help you make decisions like that. And you're a general manager. You've probably seen more of this guy than the position coach has. The position coach guy is a guy that's there to improve the players that you give him. So, yeah, it's very strange, obvious miss on their part, and like you said, something Redskin fans aren't going to like to hear. That said, it leads us into our last thing for this week. Very broadly, the NFL draft, which everybody loves. It's one of the most fun days in any league of the uh, for a non Right, during the offseason. Right, right. For, uh, the rumors are already flying around about players that might get moved, uh Steven Jackson supposedly be shopped. Asante Samuel, the Vikings number three pick, has been rumored to be shopped basically all offseason. So uh, it's there's a lot of exciting rumors. The one thing we said earlier, though, that is kind of strange this year is everybody's mocks. You can go to the most professional to the most amateur mocks. Right. They all it basically, seem to be identical. basically comes down to this. Number one, Luck. Number two, Griffin. Number three, Matt Khalil. Khalil. Number four, Trent Richardson. Yep. Number five, uh, Claiborne. Yep. And then number six, Blackman. All right, Justin Blackman. So everyone has that, and like, almost everybody has Tannehill at eight. Right. Uh, a lot of people have Barron to the Red to the Cowboys. I've seen a lot safety from uh, Alabama. I see him linked to the Cowboys I'm a lot. Butcher his last name, but Luke uh, Keckley. Something I think like it's, that. It's not what it Ke- looks like. Keekly, yeah, something like it's that. really yeah. weird. But the but linebacker from Boston Everyone College. has him going to Kansas City. Right. The Bills either have Michael Floyd or... Rife Riley. Riley. Or Riley Rife. Right. Right. So, yeah, it's going to... Like I said earlier, it's going to be interesting. I'm not a big fan of experts on drafts like uh, Mel Kuyper, who really make a lot of money to do one thing Say all Say ball long. skills a lot. Yeah, ball skills. Talk about three possessions, <laughs> hand in the dirt, and... Uh, I like Mayock, though. I think he's really good. And I like McShay, too. You know what? I don't even mind. Uh, I don't you, even mind. Uh, you know what? I guess I'm picking on him for liking something. They're just so enthusiastic right. about these three days a year, and it's kind of silly. But uh, it's fun. There's another guy who's kind of been really polarizing, uh, and that guy is uh, Don Terry Poe. He's a guy from a smaller school, Conference USA with Memphis, and – he had a great combine. He had a great combine. I mean, he ran an unbelievable time. He benched an unbelievable amount of reps. And I had a chance to talk to a kid from SMU, which also competes in Conference USA. And his name is Calvin Beecham Jr. He was a two-time all-conference lineman. And I asked him what he thought of Don Terry Poe, and we have a clip. Um, I mean, a lot of people don't really, I, I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people just realize how dominant he was. I mean, looking at him on film, we knew uh, he would be a, somebody we had to reckon with. I mean, we saw him against Mississippi State before we actually played him. 
And then I would, and I've told people before, I said, you know, Memphis's defensive line was one of the best defensive lines in Conference USA. And you got to remember, Conference USA put out some some good defensive linemen. If you know Philip Hunt, who I think is playing for the um, the uh, Philadelphia Eagles now, was you know wrecking havoc um, in the Conference USA, and then did get drafted and went up to NFL Europe and was wrecking havoc, and now is is in the NFL doing some things. So, you know, as Conference USA players, we know we have to go about it a different type of route, but we know how to get the job done, and he's. He's taken this process and he's taken it to another level. Um, he showed that you know you have to to, to look at conference USA. You have to look at these smaller tier schools. I mean, you see you know Dontarius Poe and you see the guy from Midwestern who's really just shooting up the charts just with their play and um, taking the process and, and using it to their advantage and showing people that hey, you, you need to look at us. You know, you need to to to, to make a note that you know we come here to play. So that was Calvin Beecham Jr. from SMU Conference USA giving his take on what he thinks of Don Terry Poe, and I thought that was a cool clip to be able to play for you guys to hear uh, what someone who played against Poe has. But just to kind of wrap it up, we're looking forward to the draft. Don is going to be doing some live blogging on our blog, uh, thesportscasters.blogspot.com. So if you want to hear what Don has to say about the draft, he's going to be doing that from home. And we did it last year, and uh, he had a lot of fun. There's a lot of silly stuff in there, some good stuff. So we encourage you to check that out. And uh, we'll also be tweeting from at Sportscasters, and I'm sure Football Nation is going to have a lot of coverage of the draft as well. So we're looking forward to it. Let's take a break, a real quick break, real small, you won't even notice, and come back with uh, Stuart Mandel from Sports Illustrated, who's going to tell us a little bit about these guys that are going to be drafted, what kind of players they are, and also we're going to talk to him about the BCS and how they might finally be close to having a playoff. Our next guest is from Cincinnati, Ohio, and is a graduate of Northwestern University. In 2007, he released his first book, Bulls, Pulls, and Tattered Souls, tracking the chaos and controversy that reigns over the college football industry. In 2008, he earned his first and second place honors for his work in the Football Writers Association of America's annual writing contest. He has worked for the Cincinnati Inquirer, ABC Sports Online, and ESPN The Magazine. Today, he is a senior writer at SI.com, covering the national college football beat and college basketball. He also contributes features for Sports Illustrated, and be sure to listen to his podcast called The Mandel Initiative. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Stuart Mandel. How are you doing today, Stuart? Good, Steve. How are you? Doing really good. Uh, excited to have you on the show today. You know, it's, exci- it's an exciting week for football fans because it's one of the one times of the year that College football fans and pro football fans kind of come together in a way um, to watch the draft. You know, there's all the people who love the NFL. They want to know where their player, who their team's going to pick. And then people who love college football, they watch the draft because they want to see where the guys from their schools are going to pick. I'm sure Alabama fans can't wait to sit down and watch this draft and find out where all of those studs from their national championship defense are going to end up. So it's kind of a unique uh, week in that sense, wouldn't you agree, where college football fans and pro football fans kind of come together? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think a lot of people are certainly fans of both. Um, I have, I'm have i definitely more college than NFL. 
around. A lot of people are NFL fans, only casual college fans, and really don't know much about these guys other than what they hear from Mel Kuyper or Todd McShay. Um, and then a lot of us who are kind of more into the college game, you know, we've been watching, uh, you know, I've been watching Andrew Luck since his first game as a, as a college player, or Robert Griffin III, and, um, you know, it's kind of cool to stand around see where they're going to end up. Yeah, you know, that's kind of exactly why I wanted to have you on today. You said something that um, I've been thinking, you know, a lot of people, they don't know about the college football players, like you said, beyond what Tom McShay and Mel Kuyper say. And that's why we wanted to get a perspective, someone who's watched these guys play college football and can just tell us what kind of a player they really were. We'll let Mel and Todd decide, you know, what kind of players they think they'll be in the NFL. But I'm just more interested in some of these guys. And one of the players that it seems like a lot of people can't really agree on right up until up to the NFL scouts is Don Terry Poe from Memphis. Uh, he had a great combine. He's kind of a combine wonder. Some people think he's a first-round pick. Some people say he isn't. But, you know, I, I'll, I'll agree. I don't want, I'll be honest. I don't watch a lot of conference USA, USA football. Do you have any comments on Poe and what kind of, what kind of player he was in college? Well, I'm going to be honest. I, haven't, I didn't watch Memphis football either. They've been so far off the map. But it's not like he, you know, He's not like he was ever really mentioned as. I mean, usually if a guy is a real standout at that, you know, at Conference USA and the WAC, whatnot, you know, they definitely come to our attention. I had certainly never really heard much about him until those combat performances that you're talking about. That doesn't mean he can't be a good pro. Um, you know, I feel like that position in particular, physical um, attributes probably matter more than any other one. Um, but it's no, I mean, it's not like people were were raving about him during his college career. Yeah. You know, maybe uh, another guy who's an example of what we were talking about who has had a little bit more exposure in, in college football is, is Ryan Tannehill. You know, he was started as a wide receiver at Texas A&M, got, finally got a chance, moved to quarterback. You know, some people think that the Dolphins should move up into the top ten to draft this kid. What are your thoughts on Tannehill? And, um, you know, I, a, kind of a, a second question about him is if it didn't work out as a quarterback, would he ever consider going back to wide receiver as far as you know? Well, you know, I think he, I, I assume he would, but I, I think the teams that are drafted, if you're going to draft him as high as people are talking about in the top 10 pick and whatnot, and that's that's an indication that they think this guy's going to be a franchise quarterback. And, you know, it's pretty puzzling, certainly, for college football fans because, you know, he was a, basically a big 12 starting quarterback for a season and a half or a little more than a season and a half. He showed some promise his junior year, um, had one big win, as I recall, um, against uh, Oklahoma, and then didn't do much at all last year. You know, If you were to ask me who were the top quarterbacks in the Big 12 last year, he would maybe be the fifth or sixth name that came up, just in that conference, much less the country. Um, in fact, I think he was with the sixth rated passer in the, in the Big 12, because the Big 12 had RG3, they had Brandon Whedon, Landry Jones. I would say James Franklin from Missouri, who's not necessarily a pro prospect, but was a very good college quarterback, was better than him. So we're all pretty baffled by it. I'm sure he's got some raw talent because he was, you know, didn't play the position that much. Um, but that he's being mentioned as a top ten pick is pretty astounding. You know, you mentioned Brandon Whedon, and he's another guy I wanted to ask you about because he's a, he's a unique prospect in terms of his age, he's 28 years old, you know, having played baseball in a similar situation in the early 2000s with Chris Wenke, and uh, he went on to kind of mix results at Carolina. What kind of a, what kind of a player was Whedon 
in college, and, and what do you think of the age? I mean, if you take the age out of it, he's an outstanding quarterback. Um, you know, he he and Justin Blackman single-handedly, uh, I wouldn't say single-handedly, were the major reason why uh, Oklahoma State had that breakout year last year in fall and won, won the Big 12, won the Fiesta Bowl. Um, you know, he's uh, extremely accurate, extremely smart, good arm. Now, the age thing just means that he's got kind of a limited window for success in the NFL, but if somebody's looking for a guy who's probably, he gives, he's probably, has, other than Andrew Luck, is probably the most prepared to come in and play right away. Um, and so, you know, he's older than the guy coming out, but that doesn't mean you won't get five, six good years out of him. So um, I think it's about getting, getting, being in a position, giving a chance. You know, over the quarterbacks, um, it really is, it comes down so much to which team they end up on. And if that team um, has a good system, has good players around him, and, and needs them. Like, Chris, Carolina never really needed Chris Wenke, so he just kind of fizzled out. Um, you know, Troy Smith won the Heisman, got drafted by a team that had a quarterback already, never really got a shot. So, you know, because Weedon's not going to be a high, you know, first round, like we talked about franchise type pick, he's probably going to go to a team where he, he might be the number two quarterback. And then his years, you know, then, then that limited window he already has just gets even smaller. Yeah. You know, you mentioned his running mate, Justin Blackman, and one of your colleagues at SI, I'm pretty sure it was Andrew Lawrence, I hope I'm not wrong on that, wrote a really interesting column on the website this week about how, you know, wide receivers that have been picked in the top 10 the last, I think you went back about, maybe as far as David Terrell, have had kind of mixed results. You know, some have been really good, you know, you have the Calvin Johnsons, and then there's been disasters, you've had the, you know, uh, you don't have to go any farther past Detroit and the three guys that they drafted that kind of bombed in the uh, in the Matt Millen era. What do you what did you see from Blackman and, and also Floyd, who's considered a, a top ten wide receiver prospect in their college careers, as compared to the college players that ended up going on to success and the ones that didn't? Well, Crabtree was about. I'm sorry, Jerry brought up the guy I'm going to compare him to. Blackman is about as dominant a college receiver as you could ask for. Um, and very reminiscent of what Michael Crabtree did in his two years at Texas Tech. Um, and Crabtree, I mean, is starting to become a major NFL receiver, but really hasn't yet. Right. Um, you know, I think that the common attribute in the guys who have succeeded, the NFL, you know, puts a real premium on height. They like Calvin Johnson, 6'5", type receiver, and Justin Blackman, 6'2". Um, so that's not a good sign. They like speed. I do think Justin Blackman's got the speed you need. So... But he did play like a big receiver. I mean, basically, either Oklahoma State would just throw the ball to him and let him get grab, jump over to his TV and get it. So, um, in that sense, he wasn't that different in the way he played from a six-five type receiver. But if indeed you need to be that prototype to succeed in the NFL, then it may be that Michael Floyd is better prepared. I think Michael Floyd is outstanding. Um, you would like to see what he could do on a team with better quarterbacks. Um, you know, I think he was at his best when Jimmy Clausen was still there, and then the last couple of years. First of all, he had injuries, but also, you know, Notre Dame could never really settle on a consistent quarterback, so that helped. That hurt his production quite a bit. Yeah, you mentioned the big wide receivers, and then you know, I think of a guy like uh, Stephen Hill. He's six five, right? So there are some big, big wide receivers in the draft too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that should be interesting. We mentioned Alabama and how they have uh, four guys that are projected from their defense to be first round picks. They have uh, Barron at safety, Upshaw. Uh, Kirkpatrick and Hightower. 
Um, how would you uh, rate these prospects from what you've seen at Alabama? Is there one that in particular that you think will be a really outstanding pro? Is there one that maybe you're a little hesitant about? What do you think about the four guys from Alabama? They're all really good. Uh, Alabama's defense last year was as dominant a college defense as there's been since probably you know the 2001 Miami team that produced um, Ed Reed, Jonathan Zilma, and many others. So um, the guy that stands out the most is Courtney Upshaw. Um, he is an outstanding. I mean, he played linebacker, outside linebacker within that three-four scheme. Was a tremendous pass rusher. Um, you may remember most from the bowl game two years ago against Michigan State. You know, he was in the backfield the entire game. So uh, I, I think he. I mean, I think he'll be on the right team, the right system. He should be an All-Pro caliber defender. But some of the other guys could too. Um, I mean, Mark Barron was about a good sound safety as you could ask for. For Patrick, I don't think is – I think athletically and physically he's as good as they come, but he wasn't always the most fundamentally sound cornerback, so that could be a bit of an issue. But, again, all of those guys are first-round caliber, and it's just, it's just unbelievable that they get all started on the same defense. Yeah. I just want to ask you a quick follow-up question on Barron. You know, he's been linked to the Cowboys quite a bit in a lot of mock drafts, and the last time they picked a safety really high in the first round was Roy Williams from Oklahoma. And Williams was really good – as long as he was close to the line of scrimmage. The further away from the line of scrimmage he got, the more vulnerable he was. And I, I think Cowboys fans can still remember the Monday Night Football game where Santana Moss got deep on him twice in the last couple of minutes. Uh, how is Barron a different safety prospect than Williams was when Williams came out of college? Williams was a really unique player. Um, he, I mean, the most memorable play of his college career was coming in, sacking uh, Chris Sims in the yeah. end zone and recovering the... Um, the fumble and running in. So um, I think Barron, I mean, Alabama plays very traditional. It's, you know, their defense is an NFL defense in the way it runs. And so Barron played a much more conventional role in pass coverage. Um, you know, nobody passed the ball in Alabama last year. Um, and he was definitely the anchor of their secondary. So I don't think we have to worry about the same thing he did with Roy Williams. Okay. Uh, last thing, and, and then I want to move on to some more specific college football things. But I wanted to ask you, you know, you watch a ton of college football. I just wonder, is there any guys that you can think of that, you know, they're kind of off the radar right now, they're maybe projected to be later picks, that you remember seeing play in college football and remember thinking, wow, that guy, he's going to make a difference on Sundays someday? Well, the obvious one is Kellen Moore. You know, I'm I'm just, you know, flabbergasted that he's such an afterthought in this draft. The guy was the winningest college quarterback of all time. But more than that, you know, I don't think anybody that watched Boise State in any of their big games against Georgia or Virginia Tech or whoever would have looked at Kellen Moore and thought that he was anything less than a dominant quarterback, especially um, his anticipation, his placement of the balls, his accuracy. Um, you know, as good as they come now, obviously he's not the height they want. He's six feet. Um, Drew Brees is six feet, but for every reason, six feet is a deal breaker for a lot of these guys. And then they say he doesn't have the, you know, rocket arm and that's that's probably true. Um, but it just seems to me that he should, I'm not saying he should be a top 10 pick, but um, it seems to me if you're a team that needs a quarterback, why wouldn't you take him third round, fourth round, something like that, whereas the most of the experts are saying seventh round or maybe even undrafted. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm puzzled by more as well. Uh, let's move on to college football. The uh, sportscasters and Football Nation are here with Stuart Mandel, who you can find on Twitter at SLMandel. Uh, you've been following a story that I've been following with you really closely, 
And uh, that's the BCS and their meetings that they're having about potential changes that could finally result in some sort of a playoff in college football. It looks like the four-team model um, is what is getting the most push. But I read an article I think you posted yesterday, and there was some kind of discrepancy with the Rose Bowl. Can you kind of explain where these meetings are at and how close we're getting uh, to a playoff and what the, the proposals are on the table? Well, the commissioners um, have been meeting, you know, they've had, I think, three meetings since since the national title game, and then this week coming up in Miami, I'm sorry, in Fort Lauderdale, actually, um, it's the first time that bowl people, TV people, uh, athletic directors will join them in these meetings. But the point of my column was, I think people think that the bowls, you know, the people who really want to play off say, oh, the bowls are getting in the way of it. Well, the bowls have almost no say in this. I mean, they can certainly make their opinions felt and, you know, lobby people, but they're not in the room ultimately when the decisions are being made. And, and the example I gave was when um, USA Today obtained a document kind of outlined that the BCS was circulating that was kind of outlining the, the, the models that they're discussing the most. There was a really strange one in there about having a four-team playoff unless the Big Ten or Pac-12 champs were in the top four and they would still go to the Rose Bowl. So, you know, the, everybody assumed this was the Rose Bowl doing, and it was not. It was Jim Delaney throwing that out there um, as a possibility. And so when I spoke to the Rose Bowl's uh, director of their game, Kevin Ash, he said when that USA Day article came out, that was first he heard of it too. So um, it was just illustrating to people that at the end of the day, as much as this is going to impact the Bulls themselves, the Bulls are really just sitting there waiting to be told what their future is. Uh, based on what you know about the situation, what would be your educated guess as to what system they'll eventually settle on? You know, you don't want to get too far ahead of it, but I mean, I think the commissioners are definitely leaning to some form of a seeded 14 playoff. There's going to be a lot of debate in that room over the next few months over the details of whether you know, I think some want the semifinal games to be at home stadiums. Some want them to stay at bowl sites. Um, Larry Scott would love to move the whole thing out of the bowl system and bid it out to cities around America the way uh, you know they do with the Final Four and the Super Bowl. So there's that. Then there's a the matter of who gets selected to play in it. There's been a push by some to only include conference champions, which would avoid a situation like Alabama last year. I can't imagine that happening. I think to have a credible playoff, you have you can't be leaving out the number two team if right. that team happens to not be a conference champ. So there may be some sort of compromise on that. Now, I'm saying all this because that's how the commissioners feel, and the commissioners are the ones driving the discussion. But the presidents of the universities at their respective conferences will be the ones who have the final say on it. And they tend to be more conservative. Um, they may be more cautious. They may want something more gradual than this. So... That's why I'm I'm holding off a little bit and saying, oh, we're definitely going to have a 14 playoff. But it is definitely, you know, it's definitely the climate right now is that pretty much across the board, Delaney, uh, Scott, Mike Slive, John Swafford, all the major conference commissioners favor some form of 14 playoff. The way that the system is now seems to be all but off the board, right? Is it seems Does it seem like at worst we would end up with some kind of a plus one? Right. So, I mean, they are paying lip service to it. It was included in the document, the idea that you keep the current system, you know, the current way of determining a national champ, but make some tweaks, which are going to happen regardless. They're pretty much universal. 
that there's going to be no more AQ conferences. Um, you're not going to have limits on, you know, two teams per conference in the major bowls. So they are paying less service that I can tell you with near certainty that that's not going to happen. I mean, they, they know how much money is to be made if they add games to the system. But like I said before, if the presidents were to come in and say, we can't, you know, 14 plus too much, it's going to interfere with first semester, the academics, it's going to involve too much travel, whatever their concerns might be, then the compromise might be the pure plus one, which is, you know, this is something that was first proposed, I believe, in 2004. Um, it's been out there forever. I don't really know what it accomplishes other than to add a game to the season, but, you know, it would basically just mean that you play the Bulls the way they were always played, Big Ten, Pac-12 Rose Bowl, SEC, Sugar Bowl, et cetera, and then, you know, the BCS standings or whatever that you use in the future, that whoever's number one and two in those after the bowl games would play in the championship. Right. Um, how much of this do you think, you know, we've always heard that the presidents, you know, the presidents are the reason we don't have a playoff. Presidents are against us. Presidents, presidents. Do you think, you know, books like Death of the BCS and uh, the media in general kind of having a backlash and, and fans speaking up, is that why we've gotten to this point at least? No question. You know, the BCS has been criticized since it was started, you know, and I've that was a real... Um, question I've been asking people is you know, they, they've, they've faced criticism for almost 16 years of this system. There have been, to me, far bigger injustices than, you know, an SEC, an all-SEC title game, I mean, over the years. There were there was Auburn going undefeated, not playing for the championship and all sorts of stuff. And they remained resistant to change. So why all of a sudden this year is everybody open to changing? And I just think it was the perfect storm of stuff like that for the VCS, which really exposed some of the financial inefficiencies and wastefulness of the current bowl model, the Fiesta Bowl scandal that came out almost immediately after that and kind of um, reinforced some of the things they were talking about in that book. And then I do think that the all-SEC thing raised a lot of eyebrows. Not that, you know, not that people felt that shouldn't be allowed, but, you know, if you're the commissioner of the Big 12, if you're the commissioner of the Pac-12, um, and you want your teams to have a good chance to play for the national championship, um, the fact that that was even possible in the current system had to be a real eye-opener for them. When would this new system start? Is it 2014? Correct. The current contract goes through this coming season and the next. So the new contract will start in 2014. And, and one thing to look for is, you know, in the past, the BCS always moved in four-year contracts. And because of that, they're constantly, you know, once every four years, they're having these discussions and debates. And I think they want some stability. So whatever system they do come up with, I would expect to see an 8, 10, maybe even, well, probably it's about an 8- to 10-year contract locked in with um, ESPN or whichever television network wins the rights to it. When do you think, time frame-wise, this will be settled and we'll know what the new system is going to be? Do they have a deadline in place? Is there a, a time where they want to have this sorted out by? They'd like to have it done. They don't have to have it done until the, uh, I believe, the negotiating window is in the fall, but they'd like to have it done in the summer. Um, from what I'm told, we should, I think the last week of June, maybe, um, there's a, you know, all the conferences have their own annual meetings in late May and early June, and that's when the presidents will, of each conference will weigh in, and then I believe the commissioners will come back together in, in late June and finalize the thing. All right, uh, the sportscasters, Football Nation, and Stuart Mandel has really been out in the lead in this story, in my opinion, has had some great writing about it on SI.com. 
Uh, continue to follow him on Twitter. As I said, he's at SL Mandel and um, SI.com. You can find his columns. Uh, he's going to be following the story right to the end, I assume. Stuart, thank you very much for anything. Anything else you want to add in terms of uh, where people should go to follow this story in terms of your writing about it and things like that? Yeah, I think you, you hit all the, uh, the key places. Um, I will be in uh, South Florida this week for the meetings are Tuesday through Thursday. My colleague Andy Staples as well. So if anything does happen uh, of any significance, we'll certainly be writing about it and tweeting about it. All right. Thank you very much, Stuart. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. All right, we have to thank Stuart Mandel, senior college football writer from Sports Illustrated, for doing that with us. Really appreciate it. And Don, I don't know about you, but I cannot wait two more years, and it seems like there's going to be some kind of a college football playoff to look forward to in January. Finally. All right, uh, just a couple pieces of business before Don and I are going to give you each uh, one bold prediction for draft coming up but uh just a little bit of business we really like this last segment to be more about emails uh but we need to get more emails and part of that is we need to be better about giving the email address out it's the sportscasters at gmail.com if you feel feel free to email us anything tell us what you like tell us what you didn't like uh tell us what you think about the saints and their scandal Probably by the time we're on next week, the suspension should be out. Sure. I'd love to know what people think of what the suspensions are. Maybe this could encourage, if we give some direction, Don, uh, <laughs> to what we're looking for in email, we might get some more. So email us at thesportscasters at gmail.com and let us know what you think about Commissioner Goodell's decision to suspend whatever scenes he decides to s- suspend. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at sports underscore casters. And uh, we're also you can follow at football nation, which is F ball nation uh, on Twitter. Also, we mentioned we have another podcast, the Sportscasters proper, which you can find on www.sports-casters.com. We have a pack show over there this week. Uh, we have Mark Titus, the author of uh, Don't Put Me in Coach, My Journey from the End of the Bench to the End of the Bench. Uh, from Grantland.com on. Uh, we also have Alex Belt from the uh, Bronx Banter blog. Uh, it's a popular Yankees and culture blog. We talked to Alex about the Yankees and sports writing. And we have Adam Rank from NFL.com and the Dave Damaschek football program who talks to us about fantasy football and the L.A. Kings and all kinds of fun stuff like that. Yeah, we do our first uh, mock of the first round of fantasy. So if you like fantasy and you want to hear drafts, talk that's way too early then go check that out yeah and also uh uh the guy one of the guys from the basketball jones podcast joins us to talk uh uh pro basketball which playoffs are just a couple days away okay don you are up first give me a bold prediction for the draft this week okay we discussed this and mine's not nearly as bold as yours but uh i'm gonna go with a homer angle here and say that the bills aren't gonna do anything really that people expect uh Specifically, I think they do something like they move up to take Tannehill, or if Trent Richardson for some reason were to drop that far, they would draft him, which would be really unpopular in Buffalo because they've had enough running backs. They've in drafted the first enough round. running backs in the first round, and it hasn't always panned out. Um, the reason I say this is they've shown in the past that they're going to take the best player available, and regardless of their need at times, 
And most mocks right now have them taking uh, Riley Reif, Reif. From Iowa. Guard. Yeah, he's a guard. They have him listed at tackle. Right. Some people say they don't know what position he is. It, but most people that have him in that spot in the mock draft also acknowledge that it's kind of a reach. Like he might not be worth the 10th overall pick. It just fills their need. I don't think the Bills are a team to do that. I think if they're going to do what be a quote-unquote reach, I think they would do it for someone more like a cornerback like uh, Southern, Car- Southern Carolina's Stephen Gilmore. Gilmore. Yeah. Nick's loves corners. He talks about how sure he thinks they're as important as he cornerbacks and drafts. from the SEC. So that's – I think – it's not all that bold. I just think the Bills go in a direction that really nobody is talking about yet because they're not a team that's going to draft just to fill a fill a hole. All right, my bold prediction for the draft this week is going to be this. There's been a lot of rumors about the top of the draft, the first 10 picks, and teams wanting to trade out of that. I'm going to say this is going to be a very active draft. And I'm going to say the Vikings at 3, the Browns at 4, and the Jaguars at 7 are all going to trade out of those picks. And maybe, Don, if we end up both being right on our bold prediction, it's going to be because the Bills are one of those teams that trades up to maybe seven at Jacksonville. Yeah, that's where Maybe to get Matt Khalil. You know, maybe if he does – if the Vikings trade out, say with – let's say the Vikings trade with Tampa Bay because Tampa Bay decides they want to move ahead of Cleveland to get Richardson. So that means the Vikings move back to Tampa Bay's spot. Then let's say the Browns – Say, oh, Richardson isn't there anymore. Uh, we're going to pick um, – we're not going to pick anyone. We're going to trade. We're going to let the, the the Dolphins move up here and make sure that they get Tannehill. So that happens. Then it comes to seven at the Jaguars, and maybe Matt Cleel is still sitting on the board because the Vikings didn't draft him, and the Jaguars trade with the Bills, and the Bills pick Matt Cleel. Yeah, I mean, just a potential scenario. But my bold prediction is going to be that the Vikings, Browns, and Jaguars all trade out of the top ten. If that's going to happen, they're going to need to find dance partners, though. (laughs) Like we've kind of said today, there's a lot of uh, a lot of similarity between the mocks, and that can only mean that none of that will happen. So, hopefully, our our projections here are a little more accurate. All right, thanks again to Stuart Mandel for being on the podcast today. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at sports underscore casters and at fball nation. Don't forget Don is going to be live blogging during the first round of the NFL draft. You can find that at thesportscasters.blogspot.com. And you know what? It's pretty chilly here in Buffalo. Don, take us to California. Spend my days with a woman and kind. Smoke my